0: Welcome to Law Radio, with me, Kate Galloway, and Melissa Caster. LGBTI rights have been making the news in Australia for some time now, principally in terms of the marriage equality debate. But there's more to human rights for LGBTI people than meets the eye. In this episode, I chat with Professor Paula Gerber from Monash University about her work with Kaleidoscope, an organisation that advocates for LGBTI rights throughout the Asia-Pacific. And we learn a little bit more about what's going on on our doorstep. (laughs) Paula, you're the president of the not-for-profit group Kaleidoscope Human Rights Foundation. Can you tell me a little bit about what the organisation does?
1: Sure. Kaleidoscope was set up in 2013 to address a perceived gap in LGBTI advocacy in this country. We have a lot of wonderful uh, not-for-profit groups who are doing great work to advance LGBTI rights but they're all focused very internally. They're all focused in Australia and at the moment mostly on marriage equality. And yet on our doorstep, we have significant human rights violations being perpetrated against LGBTI people on a regular basis. There are 20 countries in our region, 12 in Asia, eight in the Pacific, that still criminalize consensual sexual conduct between adults of the same sex. So Kaleidoscope was set up to try and play some role in advancing uh, LGBTI rights in our region rather than in Australia.
0: Right, so you mentioned the number of countries in our region that still criminalise same-sex sexual conduct between consenting adults. Is decriminalisation the priority issue for law reform?
1: When I became involved in Kaleidoscope, I assumed that that would be our number one priority. If, If it's still criminal to be gay, how can you possibly think about anything else until you get rid of that? But what we discovered when talking to local activists is that in fact that is not the number one priority at all because many of these laws are simply laws that are on the books but are not enforced. There haven't been prosecutions for years or even decades. So they don't really have a strong impact on the day-to-day lives of LGBTI people. What does have a strong impact is the discrimination that they are subjected to. So an inability to get access to health care, to education, to housing and to employment Because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, that is what is their priority, that they can be discriminated against with impunity really makes their lives far less than a dignified life. So their number one priority in many cases, and you can't do overall broad generalisations, but often the... Enactment of anti-discrimination legislation that prohibits people from discriminating against them because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, that is their number one priority.
0: That's interesting. So one common feature among Asia-Pacific countries that still criminalise homosexual conduct, I believe, is that... The majority of them are former colonies of the British Empire and that, in fact, the offence that some suggest was imported from England. So is the Commonwealth of Nations doing anything to advance LGBTI rights within its former colonies?
1: Great question, because if you look at the number of countries around the world that still criminalise same-sex sexual conduct, which is around 75 more than half of these are members of the commonwealth in other words the british empire left behind a legacy of homophobia they went around all the colonies enacting laws criminalizing same-sex sexual conduct when previously it was often quite tolerated that sort of sexual diversity within within communities so britain of course repealed those laws in 1967 but is now in a very difficult position to influence the, their former colonies to take the same steps because as soon as they start advocating for gay rights, they're accused of being neo-colonialists. So they have to tread a, a fine line. I was at the uh, Commonwealth People's Forum, which runs every couple of years ahead of Chogham in Sri Lanka. A few years ago and that was a very uncomfortable and hostile environment to be in. Sri Lanka is one of the countries that criminalizes uh, same-sex sexual conduct and myself and Joey from Tonga Uh, Fafafina, we were the only LGBTI people at in this Commonwealth People's Forum and it was quite you could feel the hostility and it was very difficult to even get people to talk about LGBTI rights as being an area that the Commonwealth should be addressing. Move forward two years to Malta and it's a very different uh, situation that um, people are almost saying that the focus was too much on on LGBTI rights so where Chogham is held obviously can have some influence on the role that the Commonwealth can play. And the next, in fact, Commonwealth is going to be in Britain. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how things advance there. The Commonwealth certainly is trying to um, to have quiet backdoor negotiations and, and diplomatic discussions around LGBTI rights, but it's certainly still a lot of hostility, particularly from
0: the the African colonies. Mm. So, having said that, do you have you got anything to say or any thoughts about? about whether Kaleidoscope itself might be considered to be some sort of neo-colonial organisation?
1: Very good question and it is something that we, we struggle with. Obviously, you know, we are an organisation based in Australia advocating for rights for LGBTI people in other countries. But our, our modus operandi is that we very much engage with local activists and our, our aim, our objective is to amplify their voices uh, around the world and, and in particular in the region. So we certainly never do anything without complete uh, buy-in endorsement by LGBTI activists.
0: Mm. That's, that's, I find that very interesting, that grassroots movement, um, even, even though it's coming from here, but that amplification point I think is important. So what are the barriers then to increasing respect for the human rights of LGBTI people in the Asia-Pacific region?
1: It it varies from country to country. In some countries, it is uh, very much the religious um, organization. So Sri Lanka, for example, is a classic situation where um, religious groups are very much opposed to decriminalization of of, um, same-sex sexual conduct. In other countries, it's framed as, as cultural, traditional values that are the barrier. In other countries, it's simply a lack of political will. Singapore has uh, Pink Dot, one of the largest celebrations of gay pride uh, in the region, and you know, that is attended by tens of thousands of people and has corporate sponsors, Um, and yet homosexual conduct is still criminal in Singapore, and the government simply says oh, people aren't ready for it yet. So you have
0: to look at it on a... A case-by-case basis hmm mm, that's interesting so I mean what you've just been mentioning really is the role of international human rights law or international human rights frameworks in advancing LGBTI rights and that seems to be the approach that Kaleidoscope takes so how does it go about actually working within those frameworks within the Asia Pacific region in particular I think
1: one of the biggest advances that we've seen in in recent times has been within the UN. Um, It really is willing to start talking about LGBTI rights, whereas even a few years ago it was a very difficult conversation for it to have. So we have found quite a welcome reception within the UN when we raise LGBTI issues. So the focus of kaleidoscope is to engage with the UN human rights mechanisms in an effort to get recommendations from uh, UN human rights bodies such as treaty committees and Human Rights Council that a government of a particular country do more to protect and promote LGBTI rights. So one of the things we do is we prepare shadow reports for treaty committees. So every five years, every country that has ratified a human rights treaty is reviewed by that treaty committee and they get recommendations, you know, you're doing this well but you need to do this better. And so we prepare a shadow report that sets out exactly what the legal position is in that country. For example, that they have anti-discrimination laws but they're limited to race and religion and gender and don't include sexual orientation and gender identity so the uh, the treaty committee might uh, make a recommendation that the anti-discrimination laws be modernized to include uh soji as it's known sexual orientation gender identity and intersex status um, and we find that these shadow reports are quite um, effective in engaging with the committee because often um, if they don't get these parallel reports these shadow reports from civil society the only feedback or the only assessment that they've got as to how a state is doing in terms of its human rights is from the government hardly uh, an impartial unbiased um, opinion of course they say everything's everything's rosy so our shadow reports provide the uh, these UN human rights bodies with vital information about what's actually happening on the ground. And with each of these shadow reports, as I say, we set out what the law is, we then take it to the local activists and they put in the the real stories, the lived experience of what this has, what's the impact of this on their lives. And it puts a human face to the problem, which I think is also a powerful way of of
0: conveying the information. So a powerful way of conveying the information, but is there much through in terms of the UN Uh, uh, is there any evidence that you're having any effect there in the UN?
1: We are really delighted at the impact that we are having and uh, if I can give give you just one example we did a shadow report on LGBT rights in Mongolia for the Committee on Economic Social and Cultural Rights and it's almost as if they cut and paste from our shadow report into their concluding recommendations so we said they needed anti-discrimination laws that included uh, Soji and they recommended that. We said there needed to be some mechanism for uh, recognizing same-sex relationships not necessarily marriage but some at least legal recognition of these relationships and they put exactly that in their recommendations so the Mongolian government is not just getting told by local activists this is what you should be doing they're now getting that message from
0: Geneva. Well it sounds like that's a fair bit of cut through if if you want my frank opinion but um, so let's take it another step further. A UN treaty committee of the Human Rights Council might make a recommendation to government along the lines of what you just said that they should perhaps increase respect for the human rights of LGBTI people but Does that have any impact on the ground for LGBTI people in those countries?
1: And this is really where it comes down to the local LGBTI activists to take those recommendations from the UN and and really do something with them. And uh, Kaleidoscope is actually um, assisting in that regard. In fact, at the end of this week, we have the inaugural LGBTI Pacific Youth Forum. And this is where, with funding from the US Embassy, we are bringing over 40 delegates from around the Pacific for two days of human rights training and capacity building and discussions about how to advance human rights in the in the region. And our hope is that these young advocates, and obviously the, the youth are the, the future for um, uh, LGBTI rights, that they're, they're getting, I hate the word, but upskilled in how to... Um, how to engage with the human rights mechanisms at the UN and then most importantly what to do with that those recommendations that you get. So we've got training sessions on um, using the media, traditional media and social media to generate pressure on government to change. We've got a session on uh, dialogue with religious organisations. We've got sessions on how to engage with politicians and to lobby government officials for, for change. So all we're trying to find the various pressure points that can be levied to, uh, to try and affect change, but it's not going to be an overnight thing.
0: Yeah. So the Human Rights, uh, UN Human Rights Council recently appointed Professor Vitit Munterborn from Thailand as the first UN independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. What's your view on this position? Do you think that the fact that this position being created and his appointment to it will have an impact on LGBT rights globally? I think this
1: is one of the uh, most positive developments that we've seen in, in recent times. I talked earlier about you know, amplifying the voices of, of local activists having Weetit in this role will really amplify LGBTI voices within the UN. Michael Kirby who is the patron of Kaleidoscope was actually in the running for this position and of course we would have loved to have seen him in this role but I do think that having someone from the global south is is going to be um, very forceful in mm. engaging in this uh, in dialogue in this discussion. Mm. It's initially a three-year appointment but I really am excited about the potential to get even more traction in the UN on
0: LGBTI issues. Mm. Now, Paula, I'm not going to give away any of your personal secrets here in terms of your age, but you've been around the traps for a while as an advocate and a scholar in LGBTI issues and human rights in Victoria, nationally in Australia, and now on the international stage through Kaleidoscope. How hopeful are you that we're on the cusp of something good here. Um, what, what, what's the prognosis for the future, do you think? Is it a positive picture or something a little bit more concerning?
1: I am by my nature an optimist and I do see a lot of uh, recent developments that do give me cause for optimism. Nauru recently decriminalised uh, homosexual conduct, and as did Mozambique. So, it seems to me it's a bit of a pendulum. We see some very horrific attacks on LGBTI people around the world, like the massacre in Orlando, like increased crackdown on LGBTI people in in Kenya and Uganda and Nigeria, where, you know, they've created offences such as aggravated homosexuality. But, at the same time, we see these developments within the UN, even this morning in Australia, Labor announced that they were blocking the, the plebiscite and I think that's a very positive development as, as that had the potential to cause significant harm to the most vulnerable members of our community. But if I look at things globally, I am optimistic. I do think that even in my lifetime, we may see some significant advances in how LGBTI people are, are treated.
0: Paula Gerber, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today and remember you can follow us on law radio at itunes and soundcloud and on our blog at lawradio.net if you enjoy our podcast please do leave a review on itunes so other people can find us more easily this is melissa caston see you next time